0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com.
1: Have you ever felt rushed? You know the feeling. Your flight leaves in the morning and you scramble to get every final detail tied off before you must leave. In those moments, the sense of urgency is palpable. The clock is ticking. In our selection today, the air is thick with anticipation. Jesus knows what is about to happen. Judgment and crucifixion are fast approaching. And while particularly in John's Gospel, the crucifixion is an act of glorification, revealing the depth of God's love for humanity and the breadth of Jesus' love for His followers. Jesus knows it will also be a moment that generates pain and grief for his disciples. In the chapters leading up to today's reading, we find Christ passing on his final words of instructions to his closest followers. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he tells them. Believe in God. Believe in me also. Love one another as I have loved you. I must leave you, but in leaving the Advocate, our Holy Spirit will come and guide you to all truth. There's a sense of urgency in his voice. And here in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, Christ assures them again that while the pain and grief will be present, that in time, joy will prevail. Let us turn now and hear the compassionate voice of our Savior to his disciples and to all of us.
2: Today's reading is from John 16, 16 through 24, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying to us, a little while, and you will no longer see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? They said, what does he mean by this, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said a little while? and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come, but when her child is born, She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete.
0: Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness,
3: Looking back over your life, can you call to mind a moment or two in which you felt deep loss and grief? Maybe you were 10 years old when suddenly you were awakened in the night by your parents who, with tears in their eyes, told you that your grandmother had just died unexpectedly. Or maybe you were 12 years old when your father took a job a thousand miles away and you learned that you'd soon be moving away from your friends, your school, your neighborhood, leaving behind the only world you've ever known. Maybe it was when you were 16 and you didn't make the high school team, or 20 and the love of your life broke your heart, or 22 and you didn't get accepted into the graduate program of your dreams. Maybe it was when you were 32 and you found the pink slip lying on your desk, or 42 and found the divorce papers lying on the kitchen table or 52 and heard the doctor say the word cancer, or 62 standing at your partner's gravesite. As we continue our series on the peace prayer, we come to the line that speaks of such tender, painful experiences in life, where there is sadness, joy. I want to talk today about the one expression of sadness that has and will touch each and every one of us, the experience of grief. We are slowly emerging from a 15-month-long pandemic of grief. We've witnessed the loss of human life on a scale unlike anything we have ever seen in our lifetimes. The loss of human touch, social connection, the loss of jobs and economic stability, the loss of birthday parties and weddings, graduations and family reunions, the loss of the familiar and the predictable. Grief, in other words, is our societal context today. And while none of us wants to talk about grief, let alone feel it, all of us have experienced our share of personal grief, and all of us will likely experience it again and again over the course of our lives. If we live long enough and love deeply enough, grief will visit all of us. It's unavoidable. There are no shortcuts around it, no simple prescriptions for how to get through it. Grief, it's universal. But we will all experience it in very unique personal ways. When you're grieving, it feels like no one else in the world quite understands what you are going through. My late father would have been 77 this week he died at the age of 52 on my 28th birthday. He had been ill for 4 years and we had plenty of time to get used to the idea of what seemed inevitable. But still nothing can prepare you for that profound sense of loss and finality when that day finally comes. And I remember I remember it like it was yesterday. Walking out the doors of the hospital for the very last time having Never before felt grief and sorrow so deeply in my life, and having never felt such disbelief at how the world just seemed to keep on spinning and spinning, moving on and on just as it always had, completely oblivious, unaffected by what, to me, was such a devastating and monumental loss, grief. You've known it, too. Grief is the acute sorrow that accompanies loss, and not just human loss, the loss of a dream or job, a relationship, or a community. Grief is a reflection of what we truly love, and the greater the love, the deeper the pain, which means that it can be all encompassing, overwhelming, seemingly Never-ending. But we have to grieve and grieve well. It's essential to our healing and our growth as humans. If, if we do not grieve well, we will get stuck in a moment, forever tied to the experience of that loss. We will keep investing our energies into what we can never get back. But the return on that investment will only be more and more emptiness and sadness. All we will be able to think about is a future once imbued with promise and potential that now is forever lost. But joy waits patiently for us on the other side of grief. If we choose to grieve well, if we give ourselves the space and time to grieve A future marked by joy, which once seemed so elusive in the wake of our loss, can once again become possible. Whether you are living with grief right now or know someone who is, there is a healthy way through it. There is a generous way to walk with others through it. And our passage from John gives us some clues as to how. In our passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. He's about to be arrested and crucified. His disciples are about to experience unimaginable, unexpected grief. Jesus has always been their go-to guy. He's always speaking the right words or asking the right questions at all the right times. He's been their wise rabbi and trusted friend who's always been there, teaching them the things of God that they could never understand on their own pulling off a handful of miracles to show them that there really is more to this world than what can be explained? There hasn't been anything that Jesus couldn't do for them. No question he couldn't answer for them. No problem he couldn't solve. Do you have someone in your life like that? A spouse, a friend, a parent, a mentor? You know, you're facing a big decision and you need an honest opinion. Should I marry her? Is she the right one for me? Or you need some career advice. Should I be an architect or a bomb tester? Or you need some serious guidance. What should I do about my troubled, wayward child? What do you do and where do you go in moments like that? Jesus was that guy for his disciples. And then just like that, one night he tells them, that will be taken from them. He says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. You're going to be in deep mourning. You'll be sad, very sad, but your sadness will develop into joy and gladness. Your joy will be a river overflowing its banks. How do we get from deep mourning to that Overflowing river of joy. Don't let anyone tell you that the journey is going to be easy or that it's quick or that you'll even know for certain when you finally arrive there. The late author Roger Kahn reminds us that loss and grief can often change everything. He says, The world is never again as it was before anyone you loved has died never so innocent, never so fixed, never so gentle, never so pliant to your will. In our passage, Jesus seems to be saying that we can never go back to that world. When grief comes, we have to make the long journey to another place by asking ourselves, who will we be now? Scripture gives us three important steps for grieving well as we make that long journey toward the overflowing river of joy. And Scripture tells us that the first step is to give God your grief. Our culture is not adept at grief. In fact, it makes us uncomfortable, even ashamed of it. We're supposed to be strong, especially if we're Americans. And even more so if we're males. We haven't been taught what to do with those big, unmanageable feelings like grief. And so we're prone to hold on to it and to hide it, to repress it. But when we repress our grief, we will invariably transmit it in ways that are either harmful to ourselves or harmful to others. Repressed grief will always find its way out, one way or another. If we do not own our grief, our grief will eventually own us. Through unhealthy behaviors like addiction or rage, depression, social withdrawal, or even scapegoating those we deem responsible for our loss, perhaps another person or ourselves, perhaps the person we've lost, perhaps even God. Our grief needs to find healthy, honest expression. And Scripture gives us so many wonderful examples of this. Did you know that one-third of the Psalms in our Old Testament are expressions of real, honest human grief? They're called laments. And they are some of the most evocative, daring words in all of Scripture. They express the utter disillusionment of loss and grief. Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 6, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. These psalms dare to name the pain. They give to God the grief we experience and all of its raw, unresolved messiness. They remind us that grief is, is like a fingerprint. We all do it and experience it in different ways. I will never, ever forget a dear, heroic mother who grieved so deeply the tragic loss of her 16-year-old son. The day after Will's death, she came to my office with his football jersey, which he had worn the night before in the championship game, just hours before the accident. And she held that jersey to her face and breathed in deeply the only sign of life that remained of him. And then she wailed so loudly and for so long that my entire office staff had to quietly leave the building. And as I sat with her that afternoon, I somehow knew that as broken as she was, as much as she could not imagine living another day in this world, without her son, I somehow knew that she was going to make it because she dared to give expression to her grief. She questioned the fairness of the world, the justice of God. She questioned herself. She shook her fist at life but she would live, and she did. When we can bring ourselves to grieve so honestly, We come to see that God experiences and understands our grief right along with us. Remember that one day when Jesus, upon hearing the news that his friend Lazarus had died, he wept. Jesus wept publicly, so much so that everyone there witnessed it. And they said to each other, look how deeply he loved him. Nicholas Walter Storff is an American philosopher and theologian who lost his son Eric in a mountain climbing accident years ago. He later wrote a book about his experience called Lament for a Son. Walter Storff writes that after the death of a son, everything he once knew and believed about God changed. It wasn't that he didn't believe anymore. It's that his old and familiar beliefs about God had changed. Before the accident, he said that He'd always known God as, quote, the one who blesses. But after the accident, he said, everything was different. Who is this God looming over me? I see nothing at all, he wrote. Dark clouds hide the face of God. But over time, those clouds began to lift. And he writes, what I saw then were tears, a weeping God. Suffering over my suffering, I had not realized that if God loves this world, God suffers. I had thoughtlessly supposed that God loved without suffering. I knew that divine love was the key, but I had not realized that the love that is the key is suffering love. We can give to God our grief, trusting that God suffers and grieves with us. And we're not alone. The second step is to receive comfort from God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught some of the most radical, counterintuitive lessons in all of Scripture. Among them was this very simple promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's the promise that God's mercy and comfort extend, especially, maybe even preferentially, toward those who grieve. Never is God closer to us than when God feels most absent to us. Never is God working more for us than when it seems that God is most distant from us. The late Fred Craddock spoke of having this dream in the dream, he was in God's house, a mansion with many rooms. Angels showed him around. The food was heavenly. At bedtime, he was given his own room. The angels said, good night, sleep well. And Craddock was left alone. The excitement of the day finally resolved itself into weariness and weariness into rest. His bed was like a cloud, he said. He drifted off to sleep. But sometime in the middle of the night, He was awakened by sounds from the next room. He didn't know what was in the room or who was in the room, but somebody in that room was having a terrible night. What he heard was tossing and turning, groaning, pacing across the floor. Craddock wanted to knock on the door, but was afraid to. He heard this noise go on all night. At daybreak, he heard the person next door move about the room, and then step out into the hall. So Craddock did the same, wanting to see who it was that had had such a restless night. When Craddock stepped out of his room and saw who was there, he was shocked. It was God. God, restless and unable to sleep. Craddock was speechless. And God said to him, I'm sorry if I disturbed your sleep. I know my groaning was a disturbance, but I couldn't get my mind off all my hurting children down there. Have you ever, as a parent, tossed and turned and groaned all night for your troubled child? You're looking for every possible way to get to them, to help them, to tell them that everything is going to be okay. You could be a thousand miles away, but in that moment, you're never closer to them. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going away, but he promises them that there will now be a new way that God can reach them. In John 14, he says to them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter and he will never leave you. This comforter is what we have come to call the Holy Spirit, who is always with us, always revealing to us new truths and possibilities that we hadn't known or seen before. This comforter is always at work in us to help us see things in a new way. Susan Vogel was dean and professor at St. Paul School of Theology in Kansas City. Her son died in a car accident. She wrote a book about it. And like Walter Storff, everything changed for her too, including her theology. She says that she had never paid much attention to this whole Christian concept of a bodily resurrection, but following the death of her son, this idea of everlasting life for her son, this idea of the resurrection of his body to which she first gave birth, is what gave her hope. She writes, it is my fervent mother hope that my baby, my firstborn child, is not lost forever, is not lost to me forever, is not lost. This is the work of the Holy Spirit blowing gently on the smoldering embers of our faith, rekindling hope. Just last week, Lori and I were remembering an old college professor of mine. Her name was June, and June had this deep and lasting impact on my life. We would chat from time to time over the years, but after I moved to Denver, I'd I'd lost touch with her. So I Googled her just this last week, hoping to reconnect only to discover that she had died four years ago at the age of 74. My heart broke when I read her obituary. And I looked at Lori and I said, Lori, she will never ever know the impact she had on my life. And Lori said, Mark, she knows. Not she knew, but she knows. In your grief, are you open to receiving comfort from God and from the people that God chooses to speak through? There's just one more step I want to lift up that we have to make in our journey from grief to joy. We must find a reason to move forward. How did the playwright Samuel Beckett famously put it? You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. In our grief, we, we have to find a way, any way, to move forward. We, we have to find some reason, however small, to get up every day and move forward, even if it's just for today. And that reason for living, it doesn't have to be world-changing or earth-shattering. Maybe it's just to walk the dog today. Maybe it's just to set the kitchen table. Some simple routine that begins to restore a sense of order in a world that has been turned upside down by loss. You wake up and you say to yourself, today I must do this or do that. I read about a woman who lost her sister to a tragic accident. She struggled to find meaning and purpose in her own life now. She was 29 years old. She said everything seemed meaningless. She said, I, I'd gotten a taste of death and I had this feeling of what is the reason for living if we're just going to die? But she said she started reading the Bible and she said her eyes were turned in a different direction It was hope, purpose, meaning. It reminded me, she said, of my gifts of music and that there was a purpose in my life. And so today she spends every Sunday afternoon singing for patients at a hospital in Dallas. She carries her guitar with her and sings to people who are sick, sometimes a hymn, sometimes a John Denver tune. But she says, the only reason I'm doing this is because it gives me joy and life. How did it work for those disciples? In the midst of their grief, Jesus, he returned to them after his death and he gave them a reason for moving forward. He said to them, go into all the world and baptize in my name. There is always work to be done even while the work of grieving is being done. Grief does not have to have a last word. There is a word after grief and that word is hope. Our takeaways for today because God loves with a suffering love, we can give to God our grief. As we grieve, the Holy Spirit blows gently on the smoldering embers of our faith, rekindling hope. There is work to be done even while the work of grieving is being done.
0: Every drop of sun is full of fun Teaching us to Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.